This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Coming up on this show today, machines that can create works of art, writers in virtual reality, the celebration of Pan-African writers through online networks. That's all part of the Digital Writers Festival, which celebrates the intersection and the interaction between technology and storytelling. The five-day festival is going to feature more than 140 guests from here and around the world, and in fact, uh, from here and around the world simultaneously. It's sort of a wonderful experience in that sense that uh, you actually get to have guests that aren't, you know, in the same location as you, but you still get to enjoy seeing them and what they have to talk about. So that festival kicks off at the end of this month, and joining me later in the hour to talk about it uh, is Artistic Director Izzy Robert's Orr. But last week I caught up with Queensland-based writer Chrissy Neen. She's the author of Wintering, which is a chilly tale set in uh, Tasmania's very southernmost tip. It centres around a series of mysterious disappearances and eerie a new take on the Tassie tiger sighting myths uh, and a group of women who are dealing with an issue that is far far too real three triple You're listening to 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg. The show is Backstory. Now, Tassie Tiger sightings take on a new dimension in the latest novel by Queensland author Chrissy Neen. Neen is best known for her taboo-busting, beautifully written erotic fiction. Uh, But this time she is delving into something different with her latest book, set in the chilly southern tip of Tasmania. Wintering, which is very aptly named, is the story of a series of disappearances. Men in this small remote community start disappearing and their partners left behind begin to suspect something supernatural is afoot. But this is a story about a deeper and far more insidious darkness. I caught up with Chrissy Neen when she was in Melbourne last week to discuss this book and the issue she wanted to look more deeply into. Chrissy Neen, welcome to Backstory. Lovely to be here. So your book, Wintering, has a decidedly chilly feel. I believe it's being uh, touted as Tasmanian Gothic. Yes. Would you like to describe your book, uh, perhaps just give us a little bit of a, a background so listeners get an idea of what they may be listening to and reading about potentially? This book is set in the deep south of Tasmania and it's a story of Jessica who is a scientist who's doing her PhD in glowworms down there in the caves down in Southport and uh, she's living there with a local guy. Um, Her PhD has gone years over what it should be and she's been living in this little shack on the edge of the water with a local guy and really very focused on her work in the caves. And then one day 
Uh, her partner's car is found with the doors open and he is nowhere in sight and um, probably presumed dead. And it's about her story of trying to work out what has happened to her partner. And in the process of doing that, she discovers that she has been kept from a lot of things by him. So she has been kept very well. He does all the cooking. He does all the interactions with the local community. She doesn't need to kind of worry herself with any of the mundane stuff, but she realises that she has no friends, no community, no connections, and he has really been the only person in her life. And she begins to find out some stuff about him that she didn't really know. And then um, a bunch of local women come and contact her and um, tell her that they've all lost their husbands at one time or another and that they know that he will return and he will be different. Mm. Mm. So this uh, book, and we don't want to give away too many plot points, but there is very definitely a supernatural element at play here, Uh, you know, or is there? Yes, exactly. And, uh, you know, you're seeing this through the eyes of Jessica, who's a scientist. So she's very much a sceptic of anything other than the real, um, the objectively, scientifically categorisable. Yes. Uh, So we're sort of going into this through her her eyes and her perception. So it's a story very much about loss. Uh, It's a story about many other things as well as books uh, that, you know, are well-written tend to be the, the books that have the text and the subtext there's plenty of subtext here yeah uh, one of the the really um you know and just to touch on the the first thing that i suppose people will gravitate towards that's really wound into this book is the tazzy tiger spotting myth so there are many many people who still think that there are tazzy tigers around there's been stories and sightings that periodically pop up uh, was this your way into the story this kind of you know idea of the great tasmanian myth Yeah, I I certainly wanted to look at that. I wanted to look at the idea that it really is um, such a prevalent belief that um, there will still be some communities of the tiger in the deep south, in the forest. And um, the idea that people really hold on to... um, actually coming across them and citing them there's something in that about this need to believe in the other this need to believe in this kind of the secrets and the magic so it's not really wanting to accept the world as it is without the magic of something that is possibly um, still there to to discover I suppose and a lot of scientists still think that there's the potential to find a colony of Tasmanian tigers and, you know, they say that they probably would be incredibly inbred and would have lots of um, genetic problems, but that there's still the potential to find them there in the world, in the wild. So, yeah, I think it's um, it's something that's about the mystery. It's something about not just seeing what's at, at the surface and what's there at face value. Mm, and I think with this book, you very much, uh, you start underground in this, you know, a, a cavern of stalactites and stalagmites. Uh, our hero, Jessica, is a, uh, she's a scientist that has studied glowworms, I believe. Yes. And, uh, you know, she's discovered a cave that uh, is now a tourist attraction. And one of the early kind of eerie scenes is her discovering a possum impaled on one of these now I'm going to get this wrong. Is it a stalactite or a stalagmite? Uh, now I can't remember. I think it's mite. It's one of them. <laughs> um, so. It's pointy. Yep. That's the main thing. That's right. And some mysterious creature 
uh, has impaled it. And that's sort of the beginning of when things start to unravel. Uh, but the more eerie aspect, and this is something that really goes to the heart of the themes of this, of this book, uh, is really when you're introduced to her relationship with Matthew, her, her partner. Right from the beginning, you get a sense that although she sort of obviously loves him and there's a strong connection there, that there's something not quite right about their relationship. And I want you to talk a bit about this because I actually think this is one of the big take-homes from this book is, you know, it's really what it's about. Yeah. I think um, for for me I really wanted to explore the idea that um, domestic violence is not just what we see you know, on the back of the toilet door with, um, you know, someone with a bruised face, um, someone who has a hospital visit. I think that um, the more insidious forms of violence are where you're in a relationship where you're constantly, your sense of self is being eroded, um, where you're feeling like you're kept away from community, um, not allowed to kind of, you know, keep your connections with friends Um, and I've known lots of people that have actually found themselves in those relationships where suddenly you turn around and realise that your world has narrowed down to just a few of your partner's friends and not your own and um, that is so isolating for someone and I I wanted to look at those more subtle forms of domestic violence that um, we might not even be aware that they're creeping into our relationships or our friends' relationships. Yeah, it's a really, I think, I found that the most eerie aspect of the book and I'm sure you intended it to be as such because, you know, she's found this quite, you know, objectively horrific thing in a cave Um, but then really the first thing that was a, uh, that really got my guts uh, was actually the mention of her partner not you know not liking her friends and being really cross if she went out with him without him and I thought oh run away (laughs) that's the thing that made me go run away and and I think that that's the cleverness of this book is that you've really you know you've kind of counterbalanced this this real visceral external threat uh with the the threat that actually lurks within your own home um and so there's no accident that a lot of the kind of fear elements are of something familiar yet somehow unfamiliar one of the ways you do this is through uh smell and i thought this was a super interesting thing i'm a very smell focused person can you talk about using this sense because i think it's a a vastly underexplored one oh it surely is i'm also a smell focused person as well and touch smell and touch are kind of the ways that I find the world and so I think that I come into a story through um, through smell and touch first and then sight almost as an afterthought um, and so this book because there's there's an unseen element like she's She's in her home, she's in her what should be a safe environment and you're right, in this situation it's not really necessarily safe and I'm exploring the idea that the shack and the home that she lives in is where she feels most vulnerable and most unsafe. But it kind of comes to her through the idea that she can smell something that is around the shack and something that maybe is invading. Like she'll come home and she'll sniff it and she'll smell that something has been in the house. Uh, so that that kind of sense allowed me to show that 
something's invading her space, but it's something that she can't quite see. It's something that she is aware of, but she can't see it. Um, and I think that that, in a way, was a metaphor for um, how violence invades our relationship. It's something you can sense with other senses, but you don't necessarily have a way of pinpointing it and pointing it out and seeing it. Um, so in a way, the, the, the scent was a metaphor for that relationship. But it's also a way that I like to approach my writing anyway and all of my books, I think, have a lot of um, sensual elements in them which are of the body, um, you know, so sight is just one of many ways that we kind of contact the world and um, touch is, is a very um, visceral way of doing it and scent is as well. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on 3 R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author Chrissy Neen about her new book, Wintering, uh, which is Tasmanian Gothic, I guess we can describe it as. Are you comfortable with that label, Chrissy? I'm becoming comfortable with that. I'm not quite sure what it is because it's this strange mix between literary fiction, a thriller, like a, like a um, psychological thriller, and um, it has a gothic element to it. So, um, you know, I'm quite happy for it to be whatever it is to each individual reader. And Tasmanian Gothic is certainly, um, you know, a, a very um, apt description, I think. You're a native Queenslander, so I, I felt... I'm someone who feels the cold as well, and I think, again, talking about those uh, that kind of very visceral uh, approach to writing, I felt freezing cold reading <laughs> this book. I had to put on extra layers. You really do evoke that sense of, you know, I guess of something being not quite right with these other senses uh you know did you kind of specifically want to get you know a sense of the cold in I guess the name wintering sort of suggests that as well yeah I did want to kind of evoke the cold I spend winters a lot in Tasmania that's actually a place that I write my dad lives down there and um, I go visit him a friend of his who's a poet has a shack right down south and so I stay in her shack in winter when other people are just not crazy enough to stay in the in the cold shack and it is a matter of feeling like if if you can't get the fire going, um, you could freeze to death. You know, it's that it's that simple. If you don't have a fire, you're going to die. Um, and that was the feeling that I wanted to have in this book, that, you know, they're these very simple things that are keeping you away from the worst possible outcome. And in winter in Tasmania, in an unsealed um, shack that, you know, has really thin walls, it's all about the fire. It's the fire and it's putting away food, enough food to get you through winter. Mm. So those were the things that I really focused on. And I, I also love fishing. I go fishing with my dad when I go down there a lot. Yeah, that's another element in, in this book. There's a lot of um, descriptions of food, which are, I think, again, a kind of really great way to to move people through a narrative is that kind of focus on those sort of fleshy details, I think, like food, um, but also fishing. Uh, yes. I was going to ask you about that. Uh, yeah, I love fishing. I love being out on the boat. And my dad and I have these incredible bonding experiences on his little tinny. And um, in winter, I still want to go out fishing. And we, you know, we go at dawn. So it's absolutely freezing. There's all the layers you can put on and you put that boat out. But, you know, there's something really beautiful about being in that silence, in that dawn, um, down in Tasmania where you look 
out to sea and you know that Antarctica is the next stop um, and then pulling in a fish and you know and, and realizing this is it I can I can eat now like this is my dinner I didn't have anything else planned um, I have now I have dinner there's something so primal about mm. that um, I wanted to have that in the book too although you do manage to get quite an eerie scene with a uh, with an octopus kind of trying to you know after death it's little kind of tentacles still moving but looking like it's trying to kind of get its way out of uh, the sink or something um it's kind of dead cephalopod eye not looking at <laughs> you your character um jessica i just i really felt that i was like i don't know if i'm going to be eating anything resembling that for some time <laughs> well they t- they do that you know i've um had to you know i did um eat an octopus once and um it was it was a matter of it you know it doesn't die when you kill it it kind of each individual limb has its own kind of brain network Mm. and will will move so and now that i know more about octopuses i know that they actually you know they don't have a centralized brain their brain kind of is um across the whole body and the limbs actually are thinking for themselves which is a bit creepy too um and so that you know, fit in so well with the rest of the creepiness of the book. I felt like that was the real kind of galvanic element that was, you know, your kind of almost reference as well to some, you know, connection, I guess, with some of the great monster stories out there. Yeah, that's true. Um, I did, look, Tasmania was an excellent place to set this, especially small town Tasmania. Uh, small towns themselves have an essential eeriness. Of course, Deliverance have to, had to get referenced, but only once. Uh, but it is really interesting because, in a sense, uh, connecting with the community is not necessarily going to go in the direction that you think it is. Can you talk a bit about the, uh, you know, the women that approach Jessica, this uh, this group, uh, which on more than one occasion is kind of referred to as a coven, I yes, guess. Yeah. Um, can you talk a bit about these women? They're really my favourite things about the book, actually. So the local women, and I, I think of them as old women because they're so wise, but they're, they're a mix of people from old, from 90 years old to a teenager, um, and they've all had their partners or husbands um, disappear and um, with no trace and they have developed these kind of crazy ideas that they've been taken and that they've been taken by the tiger and that one day they will come back changed so um, Jessica's kind of struggling on her own with her grief and yet she's approached by these women who are quite a fierce tribe Um, they support each other they're incredibly capable they can all swing a gun really well and and hit a target Um, they're really women of the land they have had to do it hard by themselves without you know the man that they had chosen um, to be by their side they're all kind of single now Um, single women living in that kind of wild wild Tasmanian wilderness and so they in a way are um you know they're kind of scary because you know like one of them is um is so grief stricken grief stricken that she doesn't um wash and she sort of has that kind of scent around her of someone who's not kind of looking after herself and yet you know these women can be super capable as well and can actually provide support for Jessica so i liked the fact that they could be a threat or that they could be friends and um that kind of negotiation 
is where the book kind of works out how Jessica's going to um, fit within the community of women that are down there. Community is so vitally important and I think that the idea that you're isolated is where you mm. kind of lose your power because you're complete, you know, being completely isolated, you can't do everything. You can't do everything for yourself. You do need to connect and that's the, um, that's the takeaway. Yeah, and I think, look, that the underlying essential kind of empowerment of the, the women in this book is is a really strong element, but also that kind of gradual realisation, I guess, that, you know, you're the, the frog being slowly boiled, which is what you feel from Jessica, that she didn't realise uh, the danger that she was in uh, and... I guess the the process of going through the narrative is really her realising that Mm. and is that a monster or is that just humankind or let's just say mankind in this instance? Well, we do think about, you know, we think about the monster outside and we think about the other as being something to be frightened of, the, Mm. you know, the person that's going to take us when we walk across the street at night you know the the person that's following us on the street that we don't know but but we know that more often than not the person that's actually going to hurt us is the person that we let inside our house and the person that has the other key to our door and yet um you know, it still surprises us when that happens, when mm-hmm. that turn happens and people kill their partners or hurt their partners or um, threaten their partners in some way. And, um, yeah, I just really wanted to look at um, what is monstrous and is it the other or, um, you know, is it the person you've chosen to live with? Absolutely. And I think you've definitely done that in this book. There's there's one scene in particular that I'm thinking, you're thinking the threat is out there, but no, don't do not do it. Don't get in that car um, is one of the elements that, that really came to play here. Uh, Chrissy Neen, thank you so much uh, for coming and talking to me on Backstory about this book. Uh, Wintering is definitely um, an eerie novel that I think people will get a lot out of, but most importantly, I think it does cover a subject that unfortunately is still necessary to cover and I think robustly cover. I think this is one way that, that people can certainly start to have conversations about it. So thank you so much for that. Thanks, Mel. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Now, machines that can create works of art, writers in virtual reality and the recognition of the pan-African diaspora through an online collective of writers. Just some of the many, many things that are happening at uh, this year's Digital Writers Festival, which kicks off at the end of this month. The five-day festival looks at the intersection between storytelling and technology and includes more than 140 guests who will appear both here and overseas, sometimes perhaps at the same time. Uh, Joining me to talk about the festival is director Izzy Robertsor. Izzy, welcome to Backstory. Thanks for having me, Mel. Now, I am super excited about this festival and uh, I know that there's a bunch of stuff that you are really excited to talk about. So just give us a little bit of a sense of some of the highlights for you of what you've managed to program in this year's festival. 
Oh, there's a lot on uh, again this year. It's really exciting. We've got about 140 uh, or so artists, which is amazing really to be able to program that many folks from, yeah, not necessarily within Melbourne. We've tried to keep it spread as far as we possibly can. Um, there's a number that you can call to hear poets read their work, uh, a 360-degree virtual reality room where the objects speak to you, a virtual lecture in a virtual space, um, conversations about the future of labour, uh, creativity, queer narratives and disability-led filmmaking. Um, there's a tiny letter that comes out every day with Frankenstein-themed digital fiction that's produced with VoiceWorks, um, so by young writers, writers under 25. There'll be a daily com- a Twine comic, so Twine's a platform that I can explain to you a little, but essentially it's an interactive comic that comes out daily that we've produced with Home Cooked Comics Festival. Um, which locals to Melbourne, which is everyone listening to Triple R, um, will know quite well, I hope. Or, or if you don't, you should definitely check it out next year. You can email a book and it will write back to you. Uh, you can teach a baby AI to talk. There's a lot of things happening. This is all so amazing. I look really one of the things that I think is so incredible about this is that we're starting to realise that there's not really a division necessarily between us and technology. Um, and in a really fundamental way, as writers, I guess uh, we're starting to kind of, you know, approximate that in our writing or assimilate that into our writing to kind of show that that's part of what we are and what we're doing. One of the things we were talking about before we uh, went on air was actually something that I am now super intrigued by and I want to really pursue this line with you, which is that you are a poet and you were talking to me about the relationship that you feel that there is between, say, writing narrative for game, you know, for gaming and for games and poetry. And I really want to talk more about that because that is a fascinating connection, I'm sure, to me and to anyone listening. Yeah, well, I think you're definitely right about um, we've had this kind of uh, divide in the past between digital writing. I'm, I've got my fingers up doing inverted commas here for anyone listening. Uh, and as opposed to kind of, you know, writing for print or publication and there really being this strong distinction between the two. Whereas now we've kind of moved to a point where te- digital technologies are so much a part of our lives where ca- we're you know, kind of glued to our smartphones at every point and we're on the internet almost all the time. So our virtual lives now intersect so seamlessly with our actual lives. You're sort of on social media at the same time as you're in a physical space. So whether that's that you're tweeting at a lecture or something like that, um, you know, or in other deeper ways, we're kind of embedded in it all the time where, you know, I can even remember in the early days of the internet, it was going home and logging onto MSN Messenger. And even that felt wild that there was, you know, the conversation didn't end at school. It ended when, you know, you logged off for the night. Um, but yeah, there's kind of so so that false divide I think also relates to older art forms. So poetry, of course, is a uh, quite an ancient form of storytelling, uh, and in its initial form, it's kind of it's the spoken word. It's it's people telling a story in a kind of a coloured way, um, and so people kind of have this idea that those older forms of storytelling. So whether it be something like theatre or um, oral oral storytelling or poetry um, that those more ancient forms don't have a natural link with technologies Um, but of course that's not true Mm -hmm. and I think the thing with game design and poetry is the the DNA that they have in common is uh, a kind of creative problem solving and the the creation of a, a textured world through which people can move with with possibility 
um, and there's more than one way of interpreting or navigating mm. that space. See, that's really uh, that's really the profound element, isn't it? Is that these are actually very complicated concepts. They've been refined and refined and refined, um, but they contain multitudes. Like you don't know, you know, what does that word mean and how can that be interpreted? And those kind of conundrums, I suppose, that gaming throws up, um, you know, what journey you take with it, uh, what it means, the unravelling of meaning. It does make sense that it's poetry. And thinking about this and and thinking about the fact that writing and technology has always been linked I mean writing by its very nature was technology like it it, you know it was created for a function it was created to record unfortunately (laughs) finances but we turned it into a form of art uh, which is what humans are apt to do Uh, we find the creative in these otherwise functional elements Uh, so it makes total sense that uh, with the new technologies comes new art Um, but it's this kind of interaction that I'm interested in and it sounds like you've kind of you know, when you're talking about the Digital Writers Festival, you've also kind of uh, taken it back to an older form with this uh, idea of calling up a poetry line. I want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I guess um, I think that there's there's something... There's a few different ways that the that the technology uh, of writing has been impacted by these shifts, and one of the ways is obviously the way we consume it. So thinking about, like I mentioned, our, our smartphones with us all the time, probably you read most of your news these days on a smartphone, and so the way in which we present still, still simply written prose text uh, has adjusted to the ways in which we're consuming it. But then the other side of that is also all of these new kind of digital ways within which things can be presented. So uh, very simple coding tools for people who don't know how to code being able to present their poetry in new ways so twine is one platform i mentioned which is a way of it's hypertext basically so using hyperlinks to tell a choose your own adventure multiple endings type story and you can put images and sound in there as well or there's bitsy which is a way of crafting your work into a simple game which is amazing so it's spatially oriented tracery allows people to make bots so there's all of those sorts of things so then thinking about those kind of shifts um the poem phone is basically exactly that you can call it up and it's a hotline i was thinking about um the fact that we engage with IVRs a lot, which is an interactive voice response system. So, you know, when some you get a call from, like, your power company and it's like, hello, this is Simply Energy. We're calling to let you know your bill is overdue. Please press 1 to blah, 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 and you go through the menu like that. Um, apparently, they, these are hated by 90% of people who use them, and yet they're a really core part of, of what we I think we I use just made days. a face at you, when you, you as soon as you mentioned did. it. I think it was, it was completely unconscious, but yes. So this is a hated. common kind of new communications technology that we use, and I wanted to flip it back and, and make it into something beautiful. So you'll be able to call the number and pick a menu option and listen to a poet read their work. Now, I, I thought through this and, you know, did a quick cursory search to see if it had happened before and discovered that there's a very famous artwork, which is beautiful, uh, made in 1969 by John Giorno. There's a lot of the beat poets in it. It was in New York City as part of a design fair. And it was an old school phone booth that you walked up to and you picked up the receiver and you could listen to um, these incredible poets read their work. But it's archived on the MoMA website. So people can go and check that out in the meantime. And then our project launches on the on the 30th as well it's wonderful because it sort of feels like you've come up with this independently but it's part of a you know a wonderful train of thought that's uh, that whenever technology has happened writers have somehow picked it up there's a, another aspect i really want to talk about and we mentioned it at, at 
the start of um, our discussion, and that is that you are really allowing a space for writers who can't necessarily physically be here to actually be involved in this festival. And that's uh, particularly the case with a, um, a collective of writers uh, that are preoccupied with things around the uh, African diaspora. Uh, so it's a pan-African collective, uh, and I'm fascinated to, to learn more about that. Can you tell us... You know, what is the involvement of this group with the festival? So Gelada are actually based across Africa um, and we're collaborating, as you say, yes, with this collective. And then the contingent from uh, this continent are members of the African diaspora that are kind of based around the place. Um, And that was really... That kind of stemmed out of... I went to Scotland on a a programming exchange and met the managing editor of Gelada. They create these incredible, um, very simply produced um, digital anthologies of work. And they run this amazing biannual literary festival on a bus where they jump on the bus and they do a literary tour of a number of different countries throughout Africa, um, which I thought was such a great like approach to a literary festival it's such an interesting way of doing things so that's one example of kind of on the ground in the physical world what they're doing that's making use of new technologies and kind of new ways of recreating what a festival could be Um, and then these these digital anthologies they're kind of having this cross um, country or cross nation conversations within the continent of Africa Um, and then so we kind of started talking and um our program coordinator the fantastic asia trambus um is really spearheading that project uh and inez trambus is editing it um from this end to um if anyone people might know inez's work through negro speaks of books um and yeah that's going to be really exciting and the, the five writers that we have from about the place um uh, across the this continent are, are really exciting as well and then there's these other five writers that are based in a number of different countries across Africa so yeah I think there's for me two of the most exciting things about digital technologies are that it spans distance and can be collaborative so that's one really clear example of both a collaborative and distance spanning project that is still very heavily based on like text-based writing some of the works may end up being kind of multimedia they're they're just we just got their um, first drafts at the moment Um, But then some of the other works will really be, you know, it's a short story. It's kind of, um, it's about the way in which we've, we've couched the form rather than the form itself. Yeah, that's great. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to Izzy Roberts-Orr, who's the Artistic Director of the Digital Writers Festival, which is kicking off at the end of this month and goes for five days, has an extraordinary number and array of different guests, more than 140 people involved both here and overseas. Izzy, I am interested in this AI component that you've talked about. Uh, You mentioned that uh, people might have the opportunity to teach a little baby AI how to talk. I think that's adorable. But also it kind of raises those questions really, which, you know, you always hear people, particularly I, I guess those who are a little older, say things like, but, you know, they're never going to be able to do art or they're never going to be able to express feelings. You know, machines just can't do that. And I think that's very quickly proving not to be the case. Let's uh, discuss this a little bit because I'm really interested in this component of, of the interaction between original work created by an AI and how we feed into that. So we've got um, HarryBot is a recursive neural network. So AI is probably like one step too far on 
AI kind of in the sense of um, artificial intelligence, what it does is it has a short-term memory. So, um, and it's he's been working on it having a longer-term memory as well. So, essentially, what that means is that it has the ability to learn. So that's where that's the element of artificial intelligence, which means that playing with it you can teach it how to it's learning language it's at that stage that like a toddler would be essentially in learning how to speak back to you uh, which is really cool and then in terms of that that conversation we actually have a conversation in the festival um sort of launching it it's the one uh irl the one real world thing that you can go to at the festival it's at acme on tuesday the 30th of october is a conversation around when humans and machines collaborate Now, that word collaborate, we will be unpicking in the conversation because there's a question around uh, is it true creativity? Like where where are we really at when it comes to AI? AI? We're not yet at the point where uh, there is a machine that kind of, you know, has the capacity to learn, think, do um, on the scale that a human can. But it is quite distressing as well to see how many of these things are processes. Mm -hmm. Even creativity, it's a process. It's a it's a set of rules and algorithms that we apply in complex ways in order to come out with something that is, you know, unique in some way. So there is a degree to which I think you can teach an algorithm to do that. Um, it's terrifying, isn't that. it? Because I guess, you know, people like this idea of something beyond that. But it is. I think that that corollary of, you know, of our of input and output and the things that our brain do with things is that. It is that wonderful element. But anyway, I guess these are the kind of discussions that you're going to be able to have. Um, let people know, Izzy, how they can get involved in the festival or how they can, you know, join up to the various uh, things that are going on because it's not like a usual festival, as you've just indicated, where you can just turn up to things. Uh, well, it's all happening on the internet. And if you want to collaborate, there's that opportunity to collaborate with uh, a little AI. Um, or there's also opportunities to collaborate with people. So one example is we have a collaborative Google map uh, that's exploring the Earth's techno- technological future, which you'll be able to add to throughout the festival. We also have the Swinburne Microfiction Challenge, again, which in terms of getting you involved as an audience member, we mentioned those 140 artists, but I really see the audience as artists within this as well so uh, you have an opportunity to submit a 500 word story each day of the festival um, for a thousand dollar prize which is pretty cool Um, so yeah I'm hoping that people are going to be creating work as part of the festival as well as consuming it but most of the action is occurring between the 30th of October until the 3rd of November at digitalwritersfestival.com and the one other thing actually that is open now is there's a collaborative episode of the podcast that we're producing so if you want to leave us a voicemail there's an opportunity to do that on the website as well which will then be made into one big episode of the podcast at the end of the festival about digital intimacy this is fantastic izzy i would love to talk to you about this so much more but i cannot believe we're almost up to the end of the hour um so i'm afraid i'm gonna have to say goodbye thank you so much for joining us on backstory thanks so much for having me i'll see you at digitalwritersfestival.com absolutely i'll be there Uh, That was Izzy Roberts-Orr, the Artistic Director of the Digital Writers' Festival. Uh, Don't forget to hop online to find out more about that. This is nearly um, the end of the show, I'm afraid. I'd really like to thank my guests, of course, Izzy Roberts-Orr and uh, Chrissy Neen, um, who joined me earlier to talk about her book, Wintering, uh, which is out now through text publishing. I definitely recommend you getting your hands on that. Three, triple, ah. 
You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show, Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website or subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon.